Well, you, I'm sure you've all experienced, as I have, uh, times in life where you've uh, been maybe walking in Chicago or perhaps even in our very own Woodstock or your own town growing up or own town you live in, uh, walking by and somebody has a cardboard sign and it says something like, help or homeless or lost my job in need and maybe you didn't even read any more than those big words help uh, because you didn't feel comfortable making enough eye contact or taking enough time to read the rest of the sign you just knew there was a cardboard sign and you saw it and you walked by quickly and kind of didn't want to stop long enough to see what the rest of the sign said or maybe you had a time when you were driving down the highway and you saw someone on the side of the road and they looked like you know they're frantic and they don't quite know what they're doing. Maybe they're trying to change a tire. They're just you know, maybe they're walking you know 100 yards away from their car and you see a car broken down and then 100 yards later you see a person trudging through the snow or something and you think well that kind of looks like they don't they need some help because there's not a gas station for another long. But then you you kept going on by. Um, and for whatever reason, didn't stop. I've done that in my life, walked by someone and been uncomfortable, didn't make eye contact, and uh, didn't stop and help. Drove by someone and thought, oh, should I stop and help? But, but didn't, didn't, do it, didn't do it for whatever reason. And perhaps there's been times um, in your own life where you have stopped and helped, where you have stopped and done something about it. But then I'm sure there's other times when you have not made the eye contact, where you haven't stopped, where you've seen the person in need and haven't done it. And what I want to talk about for a little bit is why, why don't we stop and help those people in need? What, what keeps us from stopping to help? And, and what do we say to ourselves in those moments? What's the thing that goes on in our head? Why don't we stop in those moments to help someone that we see on the side of the road or when we see someone with a cardboard sign? What's going on in our heads um, that, that keeps us from stopping in those moments, or talking to those people, or, or reading the sign, or, or the person on the highway, what 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 happens in those moments? It's inconvenient. Inconvenient. Don't have time. Don't have time. Feel uncomfortable. Feel uncomfortable. Doubt. Doubt about? That if, if they're really homeless or if they're just okay. wanting money for something. Okay. Doubt. So we can doubt their sincerity, maybe? Like, that's mm -hmm. kind of like a scam. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. Might be dangerous. Feeling dangerous. We, we, we want to help, but we don't know how to how to ask or how to approach somebody. Okay. Don't know how to ask or don't know what to do. How to ask or, or, or approach. Don't know how to ask uh, or approach. So maybe uh, feels awkward. Yeah, we don't know how to start a conversation with strangers. Okay. Right or appropriate? I'll put what's right. Mm. Mm. 
else? Any other reasons? Somebody else's problem. Somebody else's problem. Could be say, we could say, what's well, their problem? They got themselves in this mess. Or you whiz by someone on the highway like, well, this is the police's problem, or this is insurance's problem, or the next person that comes by, it's their problem, you know, or somebody sitting on this, however it is, someone else's problem. Better clean it up. Well, this marker is someone else's problem. It's not a <laughs> someone else's. Well, we're going to have to do oh, no. a font color change. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Design <laughs> is being ruined. Yeah, this is going to bother Emma the rest of the service. <laughs> Even in the middle of the word. Yeah, Look at that. I know. Emma, we need our four G's. God is good. <laughs> what was? Just let's just you know what? <laughs> let's just redo this whole conversation. Uh, what was it? You said something, Nick. Prejudice. Did you say? Oh, I thought you added something. No, I was just repeating. I was making a joke that the market change was inconvenient. Oh, yeah, we don't have time. This is very okay. Was prejudice. Prejudice. Ooh, Brian. Million dollar word there from the story. Let's stop at that one. We could probably come up with more. Prejudice is a good one for this story to stop on. So this week we're continuing our series uh, called Pictures of Following Jesus. Uh, the Bible tells us to repent, to trust in Jesus, put our faith in Jesus, you know, believe in Jesus. And all these words we hear around the church, in the church, are statements of faith. And um, But we can wonder, well, what does that really mean? What does it actually look like and we're this series pictures of following Jesus you know pictures worth a thousand words and we're trying to look at these six passages that show us what pictures of following Jesus look like so take a moment flip to the back of your songbook the very last page that says what is good news church all about this is our roadmap as we go through the series we've covered uh, so far uh, three pictures, they are on our fourth one. So the first picture we did uh, is our mission. As a community, we're surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. So our first picture we did was a picture of surrender. And we saw, well, it's a little hard to see, but you'll just have to trust me. By faith. Look at that, that's a picture of faith. You can't see it, but it's there. Uh, those pretty people over there. Uh, you guys can see it. Uh, one day faith turns to sight. But there's a picture of money over here that when something is so valuable to us, we surrender ourselves to it. We give ourselves to it. So we saw a picture of what's most valuable to us. Um, of a guy saying what's the most to him. Um, and then our second thing, well, how do we surrender all life to Jesus? How do we invite others to do the same? It's by believing the gospel. And so in our second week, we saw a picture of what does the gospel look like? What's a picture of the gospel? We saw the story of the, the prodigal son and how uh, in this picture we see this this, this dinner, this, this meal, and the, the, a picture of the gospel is God throwing this party of when sinners come back to him, of when we come back to him, he throws this party. He's just rejoicing over um, when we come back to him and we repent and turn from our sin. Uh, he throws this party and he's rejoicing over sinners. And then um, last week we talked about uh, living as family, how uh, we need to be not looking out for ourselves, but looking out um, for each other. And so we get this this picture here of these people um, standing side by side of uh, linked arms together of that we're not looking out for each other but we're walking through life um, with one another. And this week we're looking at loving as, as servants. What is a picture of loving other people as servants? And as we come to this passage, this, this parable that's often called of the Good Samaritan, um, Jesus has sent his disciples, we kind of saw last time, they had gone out on this mission, um, and they were coming back and uh, wanting to get some rest. And this one, too, they've gone out on this mission, they're coming back, and they're in this little debrief session, um, and there's this mixed group of people that are around, there's disciples in this debrief session, uh, but there's also there's other people there, and we find out there's this lawyer in this debrief session as well, and lawyers uh, are this... Uh, People, you don't think about lawyers in the courtroom like us today, but lawyers are experts in the law. And a lawyer for them was an expert in the Old Testament law, the first five books 
of the Bible, the Old Testament, the, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so this is a guy who's an expert, the first five books of the Bible. And so he's standing there, and he interrupts this debrief session. Jesus is talking to his disciples. They went on this mission. They're telling, talking about what's happening, and Jesus is telling them um, some things they need to remember. And so this guy stands up and interrupts the debrief session. So looking at um, verse 25, and we'll go through this passage, and then at the end we'll, we'll uh, talk about what should we learn from this as a picture of loving his servants. And so it says that 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he wants to put Jesus to the test. And so there's some people that, you know, are Jesus' disciples. They're learning from him. He's sending them out to do stuff. So he entrusts them with some of his kingdom mission, like, hey, I'm here to do things, heal people and cast out demons and to preach, and I'm going to send you out to do that as well. But there's some people hanging around Jesus that are just getting ministered to by him, like he's healing them and casting out demons and teaching them. But then there's some people hanging around that are checking him out. They're kind of skeptical, and this guy is one that wants to test him. He wants to test his knowledge. How does he put him to the test? Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? You know, are their answers going to line up? This guy's an expert in the law, and he wants to see, Jesus, do you know the law well? How do I inherit eternal life, Jesus? I know the right answer. Do you know the right answer? And if you remember back to week one of this series, when we looked at Mark chapter 10, a rich man asked Jesus almost the exact, it was the same question, he just addressed him in a different way. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is like a, a common thing, like how do I inherit eternal life? How do I become part of the kingdom? How do I have salvation? How do I uh, be part of God's people in, in the end when God brings his Messiah and sets up his kingdom on earth? How do I have treasure in heaven? Because we're all asking the same thing. The rich man in Mark 10 was asking because he wanted to inherit eternal life. This lawyer is asking in order to test Jesus. Jesus, do you have the right answer on this? And so 10.26, Jesus answers. Verse 26, he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And so Jesus answers the lawyer's question with a question. You'll notice Jesus likes to do that a lot. He did the same thing to the, uh, the rich man. Um, and he's talking with a lawyer, so he goes to God's law. Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? What's your interpretation? You, you're an expert in the law. What do, you, what do you think it says? And he answers him in verse 27. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer tells him his answer for inheriting eternal life. Love God. Love people. Love God with all you have with everything you are, everything you're about, everything that you possess. And then also, love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer is saying, do these two things and you'll have eternal life. Love God, love other people, you'll be saved. And so does Jesus agree with that answer? Is this the same thing that Jesus would say? In verse 28, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Jesus agrees with them. And we know when Jesus is asked on other occasions, okay, Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? People are testing on these occasions too. Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? And Jesus says, well, it's love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the first one comes from Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all you have, with all your mind, strength, soul, might. Um, second command is taken from Leviticus 19. These two commands, he says, sum up all the law and all the prophets. If you want to know what does God want from you, what is God asking of you, and what, how does God want your relationship with him? What does he want it to look like? He wants you to love him above all else. And what does he want you to act like with other people? He wants you to love them as yourself. And that's an expression of your love for God. And he wants him to be priority one, and that's how he wants you to treat other people. And so Jesus, you know, they're in sync here. They're, Jesus is like, yeah, that's, you've answered correctly. I'm, I'm going, going to do it. We're on the same page here. So the lawyer stood up to test Jesus. He and Jesus are in agreement about how to inherit eternal life. And so you would think, okay, lawyer, you got my stamp of approval, Jesus? This is great. You know, you're, uh, I approve you as a teacher. And we can just go on our way and I'm, you know, we're good. Conversation's over. Well, not quite. So look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Desiring to justify himself, 
which is interesting, you know, giving us a little insight into, okay, why is he asking this question? We're giving his inner rationale. Why does he want to justify himself? Why does he feel the need to justify himself? Well, we justify ourselves when we're trying to show ourselves to be in the right. You know, when you feel somebody has accused you of doing wrong, you might give a reason or an excuse for, no, here's why I did what I did. And it could be you actually did something wrong, or it could be you're giving an explanation, you know, somebody has wrongly accused you of doing wrong, and you're saying, no, 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 you know, here's you know, what I, this is, I'm actually in the right here. Or it could be that you have actually done something wrong, and somebody is telling you you've done something wrong, and you're still defending yourself and saying, like, no, no, I'm right in doing this. And so uh, sometimes we justify ourselves when somebody says, hey, you've done this wrong, or sometimes we justify ourselves when we think somebody uh, thinks we've done something wrong, like you're anticipating, like, uh, they think I've done something wrong, so I'm going to, you know, preemptively say, like, justify my actions and, you know, kind of beat them to the punch. But justifying ourselves is when we're trying to give a reason or excuse for doing something. And so when we walk in late to a meeting and say, well, traffic was bad, or there was an accident, or I got stuck at the train, we're justifying our lateness with a reason or an excuse. And it's like, okay, you know, it could be legitimate, it could be illegitimate, it could be... Uh, you know, actually, you know, you know, sometimes I find myself, you know, it's convenient that traffic was bad, but actually the reason I'm late was that I didn't plan well for the morning, and it's like, well, I'm going to be late, I'm going to be late, I'm going to be late, oh, there's a train. Well, now I can blame it on the train, and now I've just justified my lateness by this train, and I didn't have to actually say, like, well, I didn't, you know, get up in time or whatever, you know, so we can justify our actions with legitimate or illegitimate reasons. When someone asks us, you know, stop yelling at me or stop speaking harshly with me, we say, well, I had a stressful day at work. Instead of saying, you know, you're right. I shouldn't be yelling at you. I shouldn't be harsh with you. Um, there's no reason for that. That was wrong. We say, well, I had, a str- I had a bad day at work. Therefore, me being harsh with you or yelling at you is justified. I'm justified in what I'm doing. And I don't have to be held accountable for it because this, you know, I had this, this, and that happen. Or we say... Well, you yelled at me. Stop yelling at me. Well, you yelled at me first. Therefore, I'm justified in yelling at you and being harsh with you or being impatient with you. And we justify ourselves so we're not held accountable for not doing what we're supposed to or to show, you know, I'm, I'm right for doing what I'm doing. And the lawyer, uh, I don't think he thinks he's doing something wrong. You know, he doesn't think that he's doing something wrong. And we'll see that in a moment. What does he think he's done wrong that he's now seeking to justify himself? Or what does he think that he's doing, that he's saying, I want to show that I'm right in how I'm acting. This is, I'm acting in this way. He asks this question, who is my neighbor? Why does he ask that question? So imagine you're a member of the nation of Israel in the early days when you settled in the land of Israel. People around you are your media family, your close relatives, and then other Israelites. When you walk around town, you see other Israelites. When you go to the market, you see other Israelites. When you go up to the temple to worship God, you see other Israelites. When you go uh, to barter with somebody or trade with somebody, you see other Israelites. Uh, when you go to other to festivals, you see other Israelites. Sure, there might be some bond servants, you know, people that are slaves that are from other nations, but and there might be some other people that are like resident aliens from other nations. But for the most part, the people you interact with on a daily basis, like your neighbors that live next to you, the people you see in town, the people you see at festivals, they're all other Israelites, people you walk past, the people you work with. So back in those days, to love your neighbor as yourself would mean you're loving a fellow Israelite. But in the time this lawyer lived, uh, who was an Israelite or a Jew, the nation of Israel has been conquered by Rome. And before that, they have been conquered uh, by Persia. And before that, they have been conquered by Babylon. And before that, they have been conquered by Assyria. And their land was no longer purely filled with Israelites. So you would walk past all kinds of people and interact with all kinds of people in your daily life. Your neighbor would no longer just be an Israelite. It would be people from, you know, it could be a Roman soldier. It could be a Greek. It could be some people from all these other nations that have now been mixed into your land because it's no longer your land. It's no longer Israel's land. It's now been conquered over and over and again with other people mixed in uh, all over the place. But many Jews, when they read the command, love your neighbor as yourself, limited it to only loving your fellow Jews, fellow Israelites. They didn't want to love other people as themselves. They didn't want to love every Roman soldier as themselves. They didn't want to love every person from another nation 
as themselves. They just wanted to love every Israelite as themselves. And the, the lawyer wants to justify himself in not loving everyone as himself. He wants to justify himself in limiting his love in this way. I want to, Jesus said, who is my neighbor? Right? You know, back when this command was given, like, that just meant loving other Israelites. But now I've got all these other people around. And so who is my neighbor? It's just other Israelites, right? Like, that's who I'm supposed to love. Other Israelites. Love other Israelites as myself, right? He knows he isn't loving everyone as himself. And so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? And he wants and perhaps even expects Jesus to interpret the command in the same way he does. You know, Jesus says, Mr. Lawyer, your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. You know, so he feels, I'm okay, justified. I'm good. I'm, I'm doing it right. But Jesus tells a story, famous story. <clears throat> Jesus replied in verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Have you ever ask somebody for like a straightforward you know, question? Like, who is my neighbor? And you just expect him, you know, what, what was he hoping for him to say? Oh, other Israelites. Well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. <laughs> no, 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 just, just tell me the answer. You know, he's, Jesus just sits back and tells a story. And he's like, oh, jeez. Uh, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that's, you know, people have commented on what this path was like. It was a, you know, a couple of people, I don't know, when people, I was reading about it, some people said 10 miles, some people said 17 miles, but the basic agreement is like, it's a steep decline, uh, rocky terrain, so there's lots of places for robbers to hide along the way. It's not a very nice place to, to be traveling through. And it's desolate, it's kind of like wilderness. It's a place where it's easy for robbers to hide out, um, to grab, to for you to get hit by robbers. And so this man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho on whatever business, and he gets hit by robbers. And then verse 31, we're, we're told he's stripped, he's beaten, and the robbers depart, leaving him half dead. Verse 31 says, Now by chance, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, a priest, a priest, so, you know, this isn't like you know, a Catholic priest, but a priest, they worked in the temple. This is like a holy man who also knows the law, like this lawyer. I mean, he's, they would go in, in shifts of certain amounts of time serving in the temple. And so then you serve in the temple and you go back home to your family. And so he's coming from Jerusalem back down to Jericho or down to wherever using this path. So he probably just got done finishing his time in the temple, going back to wherever he lives and he's getting done serving the temple, you know, presence of God, guy who knows the law, holy man, heading back to his family, sees him, passes by on the other side. Verse 32. And so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite wasn't a priest, but he's like an assistant to the priest, also knows the law, probably doing the same things. Time of service in the temple, getting done with it, you know, his week, I don't quite know exactly how long they'd served, but he has his time in the temple, going back to his family, he sees him, passes by on the other side. Then verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. But a Samaritan, there's this contrast, you know, Levite, holy man, knows the law, sees him pass by on the other side. Levite, holy man, knows the law, sees him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan sees him, has compassion, and then he goes through all these things. And Samaritans and Jews did not get along. They're one of the people... Uh, you know, if it was, I don't know if there's like a comparison list of who the Jews or Israelites hated the most. There's like, you know, Romans, like they occupy us and like taking us over. But Samaritans, uh, they were they were not good uh, in terms of who, Jew, in terms of the list of who Jewish people would have liked. Um, Samaritans were partially Jewish, but Jewish, but partially other ethnicities. 
religiously they used a version of the first five books, the Old Testament. So it's like as you're taught, you got this lawyer who's like, I study the first five books, a professional. Samaritans, ugh, they have like their own version of it. Like, you know, so it's like everything in this is like, I don't, he doesn't like it. And they hated each other. They despised each other. Jews would despise Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like Jews. So, but what does a Samaritan do? See, journey, he came to where he was, saw him and had compassion. He has a different reaction. Didn't see him and pass by on the other side. And he has this oil and this wine, which, you know, we're like, what, what's that about? We don't carry oil and wine with us and pour it on people's wounds. But it helps with healing, helps with infection. And he gives the innkeeper, puts him on his own animal. And then when he's at the inn, he gives the innkeeper these, this two denarii. And we might be like, well, what's that about? Um, one denarius was a day's wages, so two denarii was two days' wages, and that people have done calculations, but uh, depending on the source, it would pay for about up to two months in the inn. So he basically pays for up to two months for this guy to stay there. Um, could have been less, maybe a month, three weeks, a month and a half, whatever, up to two months there. And he says, and I'll, I'll, on my way back, he's planning on coming through again, I'll pay for whatever extra there. If he's there for six months, four months, whatever, I'm going to pay for whatever extra. And Jesus' question in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And Jesus does, he changes the question. He doesn't, it doesn't say, the story doesn't say for sure, Jesus doesn't say for sure, but it can be assumed that the man who fell among the robbers is an Israelite. He's a Jewish guy. The first two people to encounter him are Israelites. Oh, a neighbor, you know, fellow Israelite. The first two people in encounter are Israelites, and not just Israelites, but Israelites who know the law, who are holy men, the best of anyone, and who we'd expect to be like, oh, they know the law, they know how to inherit eternal life, they should be doing this. They have the right answers about inheriting eternal life. Do they love them as themselves? No, they pass by on the other side. Do they do as they would want done to them when they see this guy? But the third person to come is a Samaritan. Now, there's like a kind of common way to tell these stories. It would be like, you know, there's, you know, like, almost like, you know, two, you know, three so-and-sos walk into a bar. You know, it's kind of like a common way of telling a, a joke these days. And there's kind of like a common way of telling stories. It would be like, you know, a Levite did this, or a priest did this, a Levite did this, and then a commoner did this. That was like a common way of telling a story. And Jesus mixes it up. He does a Levite, a priest does this, a, a, pre, a Levite did this. And then you expect them to say, and then a common Israelite did this, but he does, and then a Samaritan. And it's like, well, what's this guy doing in this story? Surely, you know, this guy's going to do even worse than those guys. Maybe he's going to come and, oh, he's half dead? Well, pff, I'm going to, you know, make him fully dead and take the rest of his stuff. And, but he does, he completely changes the expectation. A Samaritan, what's he doing here? We're not going to expect anything from him. But he treats the man the best of all. Even though they're of different ethnicities, different religions, of different nations, and in any other day, this man who's lying on the ground might have hated him and wanted nothing to do with him. He treats him the best of all. And so the, the lawyer answers Jesus' question. But he can't even say the Samaritan. You know, who, which one of these proved to be a neighbor? He doesn't say the Samaritan. He can't even say it. Well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go... And do likewise. And mercy is a kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. Kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. So let's take inventory. Uh, what does the Samaritan give in order to help this man? What does it cost him? We're going to take just an inventory. What is all? What's all does the Samaritan give? Or did this help this man? What does it cost him to help him? Time. Time. Money. Money. Like at least two days wages without offering more to him. Two days wages plus. Yeah. His journey is a lot more difficult. So man on his horse or animal. Okay, so a difficult journey. Yeah, so he's walking now. Use of his transportation. Okay, use of transportation. Follow up. Follow up. Whatever supplies he uses to help the man heal. 
He has oil and wine, which now he doesn't have for himself, right? Well, what if I need that? Supplies, yeah. Yeah, what else does he use? Or what does he give? Is there a club that he did? I can't remember. I don't think so. Yeah. Is there any uh, non-material things? Well, he did follow up in difficult journey. Or being exposed, people will see him uh, hanging out with the Israelites. Okay, so it could be reputation. Reputation, yeah. yeah. Reputation, like, whoa, yeah. What are you doing hanging out with this reputation? What did you say? Emotional, like. Emotional care. Emotional emotional investment. He has compassion. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked about. Compassion fatigue with you know, Crossroads um, staff there, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like the difficult journey use of transportation, like it's costing him something physically too, right? Because he's no longer getting to ride. So like I said, he's walking. So energy. Okay, so there could be. Yeah, so it's not just in that moment, like, oh, I have a spare 50 bucks. Uh-huh. There could be, like, now because I spent this, I can't buy. So what would that be like? Um, there'd be something. So there's like a. Diver- diversion of resources. Uh, he's going to lose. Loss. I don't. I don't know what to call this loss of other things he could buy. I don't know what trade off. Somebody said or priorities. Change of priorities. Loss of future purchases. I'll put. I don't know. Yeah, that could have been. Who knows? An emergency fund, or maybe he was going to buy stuff for his business, or. Um, for his family, supplies, who knows what he's going to use that money for. Like We kind of think it just was money that he popped out of nowhere, but you know, we're not told he's like rich. I kind of think of uh, safety because he uh, made his journey slower going to this place where all these robbers hide out, but he stopped and uh, hauled this guy on his donkey, made himself more vulnerable. Donkey, yeah, I'm assuming he's a donkey. Says animal, maybe. Yeah, animal. Yeah, so I'm sure we could think of more things if we kept going in. Expose himself to uh, lawsuits because he didn't take proper care. (laughs) In our day. There we go. (laughs) Nice. There we go. I like that, Bob. That's good contemporizing. Yeah. But we do. Jesus tells him, you go and do likewise. And uh, Katie's a teacher, as all of you know, and when she gives a test, she has an answer key for the, for the test that has all the right answers. And when she checks her students' tests, she checks it against the answer key. And the, the lawyer tests Jesus to see if he has the right answer for inheriting eternal life. And the uh, the lawyer tests Jesus' knowledge, but Jesus ends up testing the lawyer's way of loving others. And the story is his answer key. Like, okay, like, you know, who's my neighbor? Are you loving others as yourself? And this is like his answer key for loving your neighbor as yourself. And uh, our big idea, to sum it up, of what we can look at from this, is love makes us servants of those in front of us whose needs we can meet. Love makes us servants of those in front of us whose needs we can meet. 
Love makes us servants. Those in front of us. Whose needs we can meet. Or whose needs we have an opportunity to meet. Love makes us servants of those in front of us whose needs we can meet. And there's, of course, a a broader sense in that there are many needs around the world that we can get involved in. And so this is a narrow definition of what it means to love as servants from this passage, that this Samaritan encounters this man on the road and sees his needs the needs of this guy in front of him, and he says, I'm to become your servant. He basically, you know, like, enlists himself as this guy's servant. He's like, whatever this guy needs, I'm going to do. And it's right in front of him. And we, you know, when we watch the news, we get stuff in the mail, whatever, there's all these needs that we can be overwhelmed by. And sometimes we get a legitimate burden for needs around the world of somebody out in, things happening in Africa, or, you know, something happening beyond us. Uh, but what this story is telling us is love your neighbor. And it's kind of this narrow of like people around us, people in front of us. Um, and you see in the Bible of pe- uh, specific stories of people hearing, there's a, you know, the church in Antioch hearing there's going to be a famine up in the church in, the, in Jerusalem, in the area of Judea. And so they say, we need to take some money together so we can help out with the, the food needs up there. And that's not right in front of them, you know, people right in front of them, that's them caring for needs far away from them. And so we are called to see needs not just right in front of us, but needs that are far away as well at times. But from this story, we, it calls us to see what are the needs right in front of me. When I encounter people at work and in my family and in my, you know, my, the people living right next to me as my neighbors and I'm going through life, right in front of me, what are those needs that God has placed in front of me Love calls me to be a servant of, with compassion, with mercy, uh, to, serve, to be servants of those in front of us whose needs we can meet. Now, we can't meet all needs, uh, but this guy does what he is able. And he goes above and beyond. And a priest and a Levite see this man in front of him, but they pass by on the other side. And a Samaritan does not limit his love you know, it's so easy to limit our love. And that's what the, the lawyer wanted to do. I, I want to limit my love. I want to limit my love to those people who are like me, to Israelites. And, I wanna, and then the, even more we want to limit our love, the priest and the Levite limited their love to, well, it might have been a, a bunch of these things. They might have felt, well, I feel uncomfortable. This, you know, there's robbers here. This guy got beat up. I don't want to get beat up. I'm not going to stop. I just finished my week or my month at the temple, I'm just trying to get back home to my family. And, you know, we're rushing 60 miles per hour on the highway, and I went just whizzed past the car. I'm trying to get back home from, you know, Thanksgiving with my family. I've got two screaming kids in the back, or three or one, or I've got, you know, a sick wife, you know, whatever it is. I'm trying to get back somewhere. And I just whizzed by somebody, and they need help. And it's like, oh, I can't stop to do another thing. You know, you know these... We can put ourselves in the shoes of the Levite, the priest and the Levite. We'd be like, oh, these horrible people. But it's like, I've got, I've got mouths to feed at home. I've got to get back there. I just, fit, I'm just away from my family for a week or a month or however long it is, and they need to get there. This is inconvenient. I don't have time for this, and I feel super uncomfortable. There's Robert. I could literally get beat up and killed myself and left half dead. How long was this guy beaten up? The robbers could be like literally right behind this rock, waiting for the next person to stop here. And, you know, we have much less uh, dangerous situations that we whiz by. And so we can feel, you know, some empathy for the Levite and the priest for walking by this guy. Um, but we, you know, they could have been like, well, they doubt their ability. They, I don't have the money to take care of this guy. I don't know how to do this stuff. I don't know what's the right way to do this. And so we can, uh, we can have all these reasons that we just, you know, I'm going to limit the what I'm going to do um, because of uh, I'm not, you know, for whatever reason it is. And we can, um, the Samaritan, though, does not limit his love to family. This guy's not family. He doesn't limit his love to friends. 
doesn't limit his love to relatives. He doesn't limit his love to someone who would be able to repay it to him. He doesn't limit it to someone who would be loving or kind to him or do the same thing for him in a similar situation. You know, somehow, so sometimes we say, like, well, why'd you do that nice thing for them? Why'd you do that nice thing for me? Well, because you would do it for me too. Or why'd you do that nice thing for them? Well, because you'd do it the same thing for me. You know, it's like he doesn't limit it to someone who would do the same thing for him. In fact, if this guy was conscious, he might be spitting in his face and, you know, not want to say a word to him. We don't, he doesn't limit his love to someone who's the same race or ethnicity or someone who looks the same as him. He doesn't limit his love to someone who's the same social class, someone who believes the same things as him. And the Samaritan doesn't limit his love to when it's convenient and comfortable for him or when it will cost him nothing. And we need to hear the same, you go and do likewise. But as we talked before, it can be easy for us to see someone in need just like in this story, and to pass by on the other side and justify ourselves for doing so. We, you know, we may feel like it was dangerous. It was dangerous for me, it was dangerous for my family, and therefore I said no, and I walked by. And I was, you know, I was justified in that. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that we can uh, justify ourselves. And, you know, I'm not, I don't want you to leave here and be like, oh, now I just feel like really horrible because uh, there's all kinds of things I've walked by in my life. And, you know, Pastor Mitch said, you know, I wasn't justified in doing so. I just want us from this day forward to go out and think, you know, like, why do I do that? And you know, what what is that about that? And what kind of love does God show us? We're going to get to that in a minute. What does God show us? And justifications are reasons and excuses. And for them to be reasons and excuses, they need to sound reasonable and believable. Otherwise, we wouldn't give them, right? Like, that's why all these things sound so good. You know, I was even thinking, like, you know, a lot of times, like, when I drive by someone on the highway, I'm thinking, you know, I was even thinking, like, well, I have some pretty good ones. Like, you know, oh, gosh, should I stop and help them? And what are they going to say? Like, would I want someone to stop and help me? I'd probably say, no, no, I called insurance. It's fine. They're on their way. That's probably what they're going to say, because uh, that's what I would probably say. So, well, that's okay. And I didn't stop and help them. And it's like, well, no, so I feel pretty fine about that. And it's like, that sounds really reasonable, right? That's why justifications are so helpful. You know, that's why we believe them, because they sound reasonable. We don't just justify, like, you know, none of us in this room are, you know, just, like, cold-hearted people. Like, justifications sound good. And so, but why do we live this way? What's at the root? You know, it's so easy, uh, you know, instead of loving our neighbors or ourselves, you know, we tend to, to love ourselves more. And because we love ourselves, we find it easy to, to love people who love us or can love us in return or to love people who are like us. And Brian pointed out, you know, prejudice, um, that the, the lawyer wanted to love people who are like him. You know, it's kind of like a parrot who likes itself in the mirror. You know, we aren't just like, everybody love me. That, that's, a little, that's like a, you know, too narcissistic. But we like to love people who are like us. Like, you look like me, or you act like me, or you kind of like the same things as me, so I like to love you. Because you're like me. So that's really easy for me to love someone who's like me. And I want to just hang around people who are like me. But I don't want to hang around people who aren't like me. Because you know, that's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. I don't want to you know, do that. Or we love people who love us. Because we love us. And now, ooh, you're loving me. And you're appreciating me. And you know, caring for me and hanging around me. And I love me. And you love me. And so we love to love people who are like us. But God, the love he shows us is a love even for enemies. He says, love the people who aren't kind. Who aren't great. But we were just reading this in our... Gospel fluency group uh, last week, or this past week, of love even your enemies, love those who are kind and ungrateful and are evil, of loving people who uh, God says, I love you know, my enemies. I even, you know, it's not that everyone's going to be saved, but he's, I, you know, I shower I'm kindness on those who are ungrateful and evil. But instead of loving our neighbors as ourselves, uh, we want neighbors to love us as we want to be loved. But the good news is that God is the most loving neighbor. If you want to think of it as God as our neighbor. Uh, but God saw our great need and he did not pass us by on the other side of the road. And the gospel tells us that we were actually dead, not just half dead, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, Ephesians 2, that God in his great 
love for us, that even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that God made us alive. That, you know, it's not that he literally like, put us on his donkey or whatever, but God you know, picked us up. He made us alive together with Christ. When we were dead, God, with great love and his mercy, he saw us and he made us alive together with Christ. And it's not that, oh, look, God, they can repay me back. There's, you know, they have so much to offer me and that they're, you know, they're so like me. But you know, this, this Samaritan, this Israelite in this story, that this is, you know, this guy's never going to pay the Samaritan back. You know, they're, they're strangers. They're not family. They're even enemies. We were estranged from God. We were enemies. We we're not a part of his family, not a part of his people. We we're part of a different family. We're called children of the devil in Ephesians 2. We're part of a different kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And yet God would be justified in passing us by. That he, of all people, God would be just, justified in saying, you, you deserve to stay dead on the side of the road. But he sees us and feels compassion, not because of, uh, of what we've done, because of who he is. And he acts rich in love and full of grace and mercy. And we're told, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And even while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. In Mark 10, 45, we're told that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, you know, if we think about uh, the best example of the, of the Good Samaritan, of someone who lays down their life as a servant, it's Jesus. That Jesus says, I've come to serve and give my life. That we're dead on the side of the road uh, and God is the best. And our love for our neighbor is an overflow of the love we receive from God, not an overflow of the love. Uh, and so often, sometimes the command to love our neighbor as ourselves can people... In, Today, uh, I've heard sometimes it get twisted as love. Like, oh, you know, you need to love your neighbors yourself. Um, so you know what that means? You need to learn to love yourself before you're able to love anybody else. But why in the world would we ever want to be filled up on our own love? Like, you need to fill yourself, you know, love yourself. You know, fill yourself up on your own love for yourself. And then you can go love other people. Well, I mean, that's just, you know, a bottomless pit of, you know, just twisted up on yourself. We don't... Our love for other people is an overflow of the love we've learned to give ourselves. It's an overflow of the love we've learned to receive from God and that we love Him, the God who's merciful and gracious and compassionate to us, that we receive a love from Him that we then give to other people, not learn to love yourself and then give that to other people. It's, no, love God, the God who we love because He first loved us, that now we love Him and we love others because He first loved us. And so a couple thoughts uh, for application, is, you, is there anybody from whom you're withholding love? People who may be, you know, for any of these reasons, I mean, maybe there's like a whole ton of people and you're like, oh my word, uh, there's a lot. Um, and, but, you know, this story points us to uh, the idea of prejudice, is there anybody that you're like, this person is just totally undeserving uh, of my love? And you know, maybe for us we say, like, no, I love all people. Like, um, I don't love, uh, I would never, you know, uh, you know, we know the, the Bible is against homosexuality, but, you know, I still love gay people. Or we say, like, you know, I, you know, I love all races. But then the question is, you know, would you, if you saw somebody who you know, uh, as a racist on the side of the road, half-beaten, would you love them? Or if you saw someone with a, like, I hate gay people shirt, half-beaten on the side of the road, would you love them? You know, are we, would we love somebody who's on the opposite end, who's hateful on the side of the road? Are we prejudiced towards those? You know, are we prejudiced towards homeless people? Like, well, they got themselves in a situation, like those people that we divert our eyes from or that we see as kind of like the, uh, maybe the, the sore uh, eyesores of um, our society. Or so is there anybody withholding love? And then repent of how you're justifying withholding love from them. And look to God's love for you as the fuel that actually uh, enables us to love other people in this way. And as we think about ourselves as a community, like we don't do this on our own, that we're told as uh, Jesus says, it's by our love for one another that the world will know we're his disciples, that 
uh, we're a cup as a community, you know, as individuals, we're a cup filled out by his love, poured out for others. As a community, we're a cup filled up and poured out for others. In Galatians 9, uh, 6 verses 9 through 10 says, you know, don't be weary of doing good. You know, like we can get weary. Oh, there's so many needs. We get weary of doing good. But it says, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And as we love each other as servants, we have this, this cup that's filled up you know, each of us individuals filled up by the love of God and doing good to one another and loving each other as servants and being um, poured out to, to the world. I had this really cool visual I wanted to bring that I forgot. So you can imagine it. I think it's visual enough that you can imagine it. But I wanted to have these two jars. A jar of marbles and a jar of uh, cotton balls. And uh, if you have like a jar of marbles... You know, you can already imagine, like, if I shook that, it'd just be, like, a horrible sound. Just be like this. Can you imagine it? Mm-hmm. Feel it? Yeah. It's just, like, kind of cold and hard. Like, can you imagine, like, a church community being, like, a jar of marbles? It's just, like, all of them are kind of their own individual thing. They're together. They're close together. But they're all their own individual thing. Like, kind of hard and closed off to each other. And this kind of overlaps with living as family. They're hard and closed off to each other, not open to one another, not helping each other, not loving and serving each other. They're close, they come together, but really nothing's holding them together. It's just like... But then, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Feel it. Uh, But then a jar of cotton balls. It's like, okay, close together. You know, cotton balls, you like pull on them and it's like, they kind of like string apart together and it's like they're intertwined a little bit. You kind of bunch them up as a ball and and roll them across the floor and they'll be together. They can become intertwined. In the Bible, like Colossians, you look at you know, the church is this interconnected, intertwined community. Like they're, they're individual, but it's this body that's intertwined and together um, as we love and live as a family and serve one another. Um, but we've become this, this community that's living as family, loving as servants as we do good to one another and love each other as we have this love of God as how he's been compassionate and merciful to us, poured into us. And we intertwine our lives of like, I have these needs and I'm seeing needs in your life and I'm offering myself as a servant to you. And then, you know, vice versa. And it's not just that I'm looking up for my needs, but it's I'm offering myself to you and now all of you are offering yourself to me and we become this intertwined community. And now, as we think about, no, now we love as servants to a world, it's like, okay, that marble jar, it's like, man, that's not a community that gives us picture of love to the rest of the world. It's like, well, you guys are together, but you're just this, yeah, this you know, cold, hard thing, but this you know, soft place to land of safety and love that's interconnected um, for the rest of the world. That's where we're supposed to be. It's pouring out this love um, that we've been served by, by God um, through Jesus uh, and through each other um, to the rest of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that teaches us what you this picture of love that we see from Samaritan and Jesus showing us that uh, there is mercy, there is compassion that is your heart for us that's the heart you want us to have for each other would you please give that to us that we do tend to look out for ourselves would you let us look out for each other would you look out, help us to look out for those around us it's your Sunday, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen.